Wednesday night, uh, 6.30, we're going to show that movie. That's The Passion of the Christ uh, in its entirety. You're welcome, invited to come join us for that. We're going to begin with the word this morning. Let's go ahead and stand as we read John 19, and we're going to pick it up in verse 16. We'll skip a small section, and then we'll pick it back up in verse 28 here. Pilate, uh, referred to here, says, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And Lord Jesus, as we uh, hear, see, and, and try to capture what really happened that day on the cross, Lord, we are overwhelmed with sorrow, um, regret. Lord, it's, it's our sin that, that placed you on the cross. It was our sin that kept you there. It was our need that, uh, that required your sacrifice. And God, we just pray that we would bear the weight of that for even just a moment that you would do such a thing for us, Lord. We are so undeserving. Every day we, we know that our lives are, are not worthy of such a sacrifice, and yet you tell us that we are loved that much, that we are so precious to you that you would you would do something like that for us, Lord. It's no question, God, how much you love us, how much you care for us, and what extent you would go through for us. And God, we just pray that your spirit uh, would take those truths that um, you've revealed in your word and that you have spoken by the power of your spirit in our own hearts. And uh, God, would you um, announce again through us and to us that we are that loved. Would you, would you help us to grasp it, claim it, and live it for you again today? Would you uh, walk with us, Lord, um, as we seek to live out these things? And don't let us walk away from it, Lord, but um, face it. Stare it right in the face and let it have its effect changing hearts, changing minds, changing lives, 
both now and forever. And we will give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, these days, we, uh, we take the cross and we um, adorn our buildings and uh, wear them as necklaces and uh, maybe even put them on our skin. And uh, we like to decorate with crosses quite a bit. And whether you're Christian or not, we see crosses everywhere. People understand somehow the cross is a symbol, a lasting image of God's grace, His mercy, His love. Whether you grasp that that's really what's happening or not, um, there's something about it inherently that tells you that uh, this is a symbol of grace. And you look back at the things that actually happened in Scripture and in those days, what they were doing, what, what the crucifixion was really like. And you know that the people from that century would be shocked uh, to see us wearing crosses and decorating our homes with them and painting them in pictures as if this is some wonderful, glorious thing. Because to the Romans and to that world, it was the symbol of rejection and insult and pain and misery. It, it was the Romans' way of showing the world that they had conquered. Um, there were easier ways to kill people, okay? Uh, they, they did it this way um, because they could make it last and they could make it public and they could show the world that they had so over, overwhelmed and conquered and overpowered with their force that they would even um, require the victim to carry their own cross to the place of their execution. The Romans... Um, did not allow their own citizens to be executed this way. Uh, they had come into areas and conquered. Israel was one of those areas. They were uh, militarily occupying that land, and they were showing force and showing their authority by, by staying in that area. And then Pilate, as governor in Jerusalem, would use crucifixion to execute people regularly. And so, one of the things that they uh, did, it was not because of expediency, okay, having you carry your own cross. That's not the easiest way to get that material to where it needs to be. Uh, they did that because it showed the world that this victim had so succumbed to Roman power and authority that they, they had completely submitted to their power. And Jesus... Uh, talks to his disciples, and, and I'm sure you remember him saying this. He says, um, if you would follow me, you must pick up your, what? Cross. How often? Daily. And come follow me. Now, the disciples were very familiar with a cross. They, they understood what that meant. When Jesus said, pick up your cross daily, follow me, they had seen the procession of 
victims carrying crosses to Golgotha and other places where they were, would be crucified. They, they probably, on a regular basis, maybe not a daily basis, but on a regular basis, saw crucified victims. Okay? This was normal for them to see these things happening. And so Jesus saying, pick up your cross daily and follow me, they got it. They knew exactly what that meant. And Jesus, in the garden of Gethsemane, as he prays, God, your will be done, not my own, and he submits to the Father's will, then everything that follows after that is submission to the Father's will, an example of what it means to say, God, not, not my will, but yours be done. I'll, he will even carry his own cross to Golgotha because it is a picture of that 100% complete submission to his Father's will. And then he's going to tell his disciples, you pick up your cross daily, follow me. Here's, I'll show you how it works. <laughs> we, we, uh, we think that life should be easy, and Jesus shows us that life is, is pretty hard. We think Christianity should be easy. We think that following Jesus should be easy, um, but it's difficult. What happens is that the work done on the cross gives us the very first leap of faith from being lost and under wrath and under condemnation to salvation and purity and forgiveness and a right relationship with God. That's the first step in picking up your cross. But he didn't say pick up your cross once, right? He said, pick up your cross daily. So the first step in submitting to God is saying, God, I'm a, I'm a sinner, and I need salvation. I need forgiveness through Jesus Christ. He did all the work for me on the cross, and I'm going to receive that. I, I can do nothing to earn my salvation. If, we, if the average person were to ask the average Christian, you know, what does it take? What do I have to do to be saved? I mean, would you start going down the list of all the all the Christian things that you do, you know, okay, first of all, get out your checkbook, okay, whatever you make, let's just go ahead and write your 10% of that to the church, let's do that first, and make sure that you're going to show up to a worship service every week, and you're going to read your Bible every day, a couple chapters, probably be a good start, um, you're going to pray, you know, half an hour in the morning, and and throughout the day, and make sure you do some prayer time in the evening as well, and, and uh, sign up to serve in, in the youth ministry, um, and, you know, maybe there's a mission trip coming up, and you, you should probably do that too. And then, after a few decades, maybe, if you're lucky, is this, is this how the spiel goes? Maybe God, but this is how we feel. And... and this is what it looks like a lot of times when people want that confidence of salvation, then, then we, we try to get them there through all these disciplines. But Jesus and our Bibles tell us very clearly that you cannot do anything to save yourself. All you can do is accept and receive what Jesus did for you. Now, you have to intentionally receive that. It's not a passive thing that just happens to you. 
He died on the cross, and he says, you must receive. And John 3.16 tells us very clearly, all who, what? Believe shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we take that leap of faith, and that gets us into a relationship. But then there's all these other things that have to happen, not to make you saved, but to grow you into a more Christ-like person. And we got to differentiate. We have to explain the difference for a moment because what happens for some people is that the intentional spiritual growth that we know we need sometimes gets filtered back into salvation and we don't, we don't talk about how there are two different things and so we're constantly trying to earn our salvation and undermining our growth because we're working at disciplines and not growing in our relationship. So here's what happens. If you will call on the name of Jesus, you will be saved. Stop trying to get saved. <laughs> then, here's, here's the next thing that happens. Do I have to do all those things? You ever hear that? Do I have to go to church? You don't have to, how many times have I heard this? You don't have to go to church to be a Christian, right? You don't have to read your Bible to be a Christian. You don't have to pray to be a Christian. You don't have to serve to be a Christian. You don't have to give to be a Christian. You don't have to do any of those things to be a Christian because what? You're saved by grace through faith, not by works. But I'm going to say something controversial, okay? Just a warning. Anyone who knew that they were lost and received the gift of salvation by faith, by putting their trust in Jesus Christ, would not ask that question. Do I have to? It's such a privilege to be brought into a right relationship with God, to, to know him have your sin paid for and taken care of and be made a new creation, why would we dare ask, do I have to? Now, I'm not saying that we all always want to, but we should know that we should want to because the Holy Spirit in me cries out, from even within my own spirit and says, Father. And so here's just a couple practical things that I, I want to share with you is that um, I take some responsibility for some of the misconceptions um, because we constantly are seeking to help and teach people um, to apply Christian spiritual disciplines, right? What are the, what are the, spiritual disciplines that we're always talking about. Let's, let's hear from you. Read your Bible. What else? Pray. What else? Fellowship. Small groups. Serve. Missing a big one. We, huh? 
Tithe. That wasn't the one I was thinking of. <laughs> Worship. Worship. So you got these five or six things that we just, you know, yeah, you got to do these things. And they're important, right? They are important. You need to learn what God's Word says so that your mind can be renewed. You need to pray so that you can grow in your relationship with God. You need to worship because it, it inspires your heart to, to know and have an encounter with God. You need to serve because you, He's gifted you with things. You need to give because He's, He's provided for you. You need to... All these things are important, but how much more can some of you do? I mean, I, I know that there are some people that cannot fit any more disciplines into their life. You're working eight, ten hours a day. You're commuting an hour, two hours a day. You've you got a family to raise. You've got things that are going on, and you're getting up early in the morning, reading your Bible, praying. You're, you're listening to worship music on the way to work. You're doing all these things, and you're like, I, I can't fit. Anybody there? Like, I can't fit another discipline. More time, another hour of prayer, another you know, three chapters I'm going to read in this workbook or this, it's like this, it's a lot. But <laughs> we, we seem to, tend to um, think, I'm talking about myself, if you just did more, spent more time, then you would be a better Christian. And to a degree, it's just not true. How many of us realize there are plenty of people who are quite knowledgeable of the word, um, spend lots of time in prayer, and are no different. Something has to shift. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It happens by intention. That my attitude should be that of Jesus Christ. This is what Philippians tells us. Your attitude should be that of Jesus Christ. Let's take the attitude and start applying that. And I'll just give you, a, for instance, in, in my own case, there are three, top three things that I, I desperately need from God. And so because I desperately need them from God, I, I need to represent those things outwardly in my relationships with other people. Um, number one is forgiveness. I am, I am desperate for God's forgiveness. I need to know, sense, feel and understand that God has taken my sin and forgiven it. Okay, that's great on a personal level, but I also have to then turn around and, and be forgiving. If I have been forgiven a, a, an immeasurable debt, then I have to be willing to forgive a minuscule debt to other people. That's what the Bible tells us. You cannot appreciate how much God has forgiven you if you're not willing to forgive other people. A Christian living in bitterness um, has missed something in their relationship with God. Okay, I'm trying to make this positive, not negative. So <laughs> let me come back to what a blessing it is to be able to say, I'm not going to be angry about that. I'm not going to hold that against that person. They're just a human being for goodness sake. And even if they intend to offend me, it's, that's between them and God. Amen? I release them. Secondly, um, I need desperately 
grace. And grace, you know, I, I, uh, I've talked about it in a lot of different ways, but grace is uh, the power of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. But what grace is from, from uh, the God perspective is a holy uh, spiritual optimism. God um, is very optimistic about us. <laughs> it's kind of crazy to think that God can take um, anyone and use them uh, however he wants. Okay? He doesn't have to start with the strongest, smartest, best-looking, most capable people. He can start with anyone and use them in a powerful way to do what he wants. That's grace. I require a lot of grace from God. Now, do I then turn around and have grace for other people? Okay. Do I have a holy optimism, a spiritual optimism for others, believing that other people have great potential, that they can be forgiven, that they can change, that they can be uh, filled with God's Spirit and used and uh, can reach people that maybe I'm not going to and can impact you know, places that I, I'm not going to impact, that no matter how bad they mess up, they can be restored. Do I have a, a holy optimism for other people? Do I understand that all of Scripture really leads us to understand if, if I've received it, then obviously somebody else can. But I have to be an instrument to see that happen in somebody else's life too. That I have a part to play to say, God can still use you. No matter what's happened in your life, no matter what you've done, God's story in your life is not over. You don't wreck ultimately and fundamentally and completely what God wants to restore. It's an amazing gift that not only we receive, but that we give. And thirdly, um, I pray constantly for peace. I don't know if that's one of your prayers or not. I, I, I require a lot of God's spirit to calm uh, anxiousness and um, worry and um, just responsibility, the weight of the, that. I need his peace to, to help me through the day. I don't know if that's you or not, but um, there's something that you can do here in your attitude that you can be an agent of peace for others. Uh, you ever notice that there's no uh, lack of drama that people will try to bring into your life, into your workplace, into your family, into your church, into your whatever, okay? I don't increase the drama. I try not to. I try to decrease it. Try to uh, bring unity, not division. Do, do, do I always uh, succeed in that? No. Uh, but it is my intention to be a peacemaker and not a troublemaker. Sometimes when you speak the truth, you end up being a troublemaker. But the, the goal is to unify uh, the church and the world around the absolute truth of who God is. Peace comes from Jesus, Prince of Peace. You try to find it the way that the world gives it, you'll always end up compromising. You come to it from the Jesus perspective, and you'll always find common ground. Amen?
You can do that, intentionally do that. These things um, begin to help us to grow spiritually so that we can become the, the uh, ambassadors and the agents for uh, God's kingdom that he's gifted us to be. They don't make us more saved, okay? We start from a confidence that God will hold to his promises, and then from there, we move intentionally towards spiritual growth because it is our privilege to do that. He provides that in two specific ways, okay? I want to just share these two with you. Um, the first is sacrifice. In the Old Testament, um, they had so many sacrifices. They were sacrificing every day, every morning, every evening at the temple. It was constant. They were, they were shedding blood, uh, lambs and pigeons and ox and goats and, and just, you know, all these sacrificial animals constantly being brought, grain offerings. Um, sometimes they would bring money uh, to replace an offering that they couldn't bring uh, physically. So they would do all these offerings all the time, sacrifices all the time. Jesus was sacrificed on the cross at the very time that they were sacrificing the lambs at the temple for the Passover. Okay, some of you know that Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. Just so there's no confusion, there were two options for every Jewish person because there are so many people in Jerusalem at the time. You could have an early Passover or you could have the normal traditional Passover. So Jesus celebrated the early Passover with his disciples, but the normal traditional Passover was Friday. At 9 o'clock in the morning, they were sacrificing the lambs at the temple for the Passover meals for many, many people. And Jesus was placed on the cross at that time. Okay. As he does this, he does this intentionally, and he experiences hell on earth. Sometimes uh, we wonder and we talk about, where did, where did Jesus go when he died? Where did his spirit go? Did he go to heaven? Did he go to the Father? Did he go to hell? Did he go to, you know, Hades? Did he, Luke chapter 16, paradise and, and torment. Where, where did his spirit go when he died? But, you know, I'm going to put aside that whole um, argument for a moment because I just learned this this week. On the cross, Jesus experienced hell on earth. Three very prominent symbols for hell that he gave during his ministry, he experienced while he was on the cross. It was a period of darkness. And he says that hell is darkness. And God supernaturally um, covered the sky for three hours while he was on the cross. Jesus says, you remember these words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, God was abandoning. For the first time in all eternity, he's turning his back on his son, pouring out his wrath on him on the cross, and Jesus experienced hell on earth. It says that he thirsted. Now, I mean, being thirsty is really not an, an abnormal thing, but when you connect what's going on here with um, what happens in hell, the rich man that Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 16 who's in torment, 
He says, I thirst. Would you please send Lazarus uh, with uh, just a drop of water to place on my tongue? And this is the kind of thirst that we're talking about. He experienced this. Uh, he experienced uh, the, the darkness and the abandonment and the uh, isolation. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, for the first time in his life, he is separated from God. These three things, darkness, thirst, and isolation, hell on earth, the sacrifice has been completed. And that's why he's able to say in the next moment, it is finished. Now, this is the last thing. Intentionally, purposefully, here, do you understand Jesus had an indestructible life? No one could take it from him. Couldn't, they couldn't kill him if he did not allow it. If he did not lay his life down. He was God in the flesh. But he says it is finished. And what he does is he lays his life down. He actually intentionally uh, dies. He, he says, I love you enough to lay my life down. In that death, something happens in the Old Testament when blood is uh, shed for sins, it covered sins. When Jesus uh, gave his blood and laid his life down, it actually removed sin. There's a big difference between covering and removing. And what happens in that difference is that uh, he tells the uh, Pharisees and the uh, other leaders, he says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You, you go and you paint, you know, the gravestones and you make them look nice, but inside they're filled with dead men's bones and all kinds of corruption. And in the Old Testament, what was happening is that God was just kind of passing over people's sins. He was saying, it's, it's sufficient for now, but there's coming a day when I'm going to remove sin. And John, the Baptist says, of Jesus says, behold, the Lamb of God who does what? takes away the sin of the world. The, the New Testament, this is kind of a, it's embedded in the scripture. And if you don't dig it out, you might not see it, but it tells us this over and over and over. Hebrews tells us very specifically in chapter 10 that Jesus takes away the sin. He removes the sin. It's not just covering it. And, and here's what happens is that when you uh, enter into a covenant with God through salvation, through faith in Jesus Christ, you have become a new creation in Christ. But how many of us as Christians uh, continue to stumble and sin unintentionally or intentionally? <laughs> well, what do you do with that? It says he removes sin. Does that mean that you don't have to worry about it? Like it's just taken care of? You don't have to bother with repenting or... 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sin, then he is faithful to forgive us and then do what? Somebody said it. Cleanse. Here's what happens. When I was uh, 19, I recognized that I was a sinner lost and I needed the Lord Jesus and I stepped into a covenant with him that put me into a relationship, and that was my salvation. And, and from that point, every day, picking up your cross daily means that when I recognize that I have done something wrong, God has put within that relationship the ability to have my sin removed on a 
regular basis. He can he just take it away. As, and the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. I heard this when I was uh, a young uh, youth pastor. Uh, my pastor said this, and I just it blew me away. He said the, the difference, the reason why east and west is used, not north and south, is because when you get to the North Pole, from there, everywhere is what? South. When you get to the South Pole, when you get there, everywhere is north. You can't, you will never run into east if you go west. You'll never run into west when you go east. It's infinite. It's, there's no connection ever again. This is how far God says he removes your sin from you, that it is gone, taken care of, and thrown away as far as the east is from the west. Every day when you come to the Lord and you just say, God, I, I'm sorry. I don't even know everything that I've done wrong, but I, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need your salvation, your forgiveness, your cleansing. Would you take care of that? Will he argue with you about it? Anybody? Well, I'm not so sure. He says, you trust my promise, it's a guarantee for you. You come to me, you confess your sin, I will remove it and I'll cleanse you. So his death, when he says it is finished, is this amazing thing. It's the word tetelestai, and uh, it was used commonly in those days. I didn't realize this. Um, I always thought that was such a unique thing for, for Jesus to say on the cross. It, it was absolutely a normal thing for people to use. Painters and sculptors would use it when they had created a masterpiece, and it was they would say, it, tetelestai, it's finished, when they couldn't add another thing to it without ruining what they've done. Um, servants, you know, would be given a task by a master, and when they'd completed the task, they would come to their master, and they would say, tetelestai, I've completed the work. I've done everything that you've asked me to do. Uh, a merchant who had a debt, if he was going to pay the debt in total, in full, he'd bring the money, and he would place it, uh, before the loan officer, and he would say, Tetelestai, it is finished. It's completely paid for. Uh, a priest, when they were examining the, the animals that, that had to be sacrificed, it had to be perfect. If the animal was worthy, they would say, Tetelestai, it's finished. It's complete. It's, it's right. When Jesus said, Tetelestai on the cross, he said, it is finished. He's saying all those things. I've done the work. It, my masterpiece is done. Uh, I've paid the debt. I've paid the sacrifice, and it is done. That is the gift that he gives to anyone who by simple faith would say, yes, Jesus. He did the work. We get the benefit. There was a curse that was brought in by Adam and Eve, and he reversed it, and he paid the price. I mean, it's... And here's the thing. The best is yet to come. Easter's coming. Amen? The cross was as glorious as it was, and all that it did pales in comparison to what we're going to celebrate next week. And Father, we thank you you have greater things in store. Greater things for us and greater things in this world, Lord, that you want to do in our lives through 
a simple submission that we would simply agree with you, God. What, what an amazing and a crazy thing that we would just agree with you and you would make all your promises validated in our lives, true to us, real to us, permanently established in our hearts, God, that you are faithful to do all that you've promised. It's such a small thing to say yes to you, and yet such a huge hurdle for so many. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit um, would prompt anyone, everyone who has um, that hurdle in their life, Lord, to leap over it, agree with you, and see how good you are. We can test that by simply accepting it. <laughs> and you will show your grace and your goodness. And so, God, we pray for that today. Make your promises come true in our lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to make that decision real in your life. If you have not done so already, um, we don't do high pressure. <laughs> um, we just offer you an invitation. The front of our stage is what we call the altar. You can come, lay your life down. You can lay it down as a symbol of salvation. You can lay it down as a symbol of renewal or just, I want more of God in my life. Um, but we are here to pray with you. We would love to come around you and just lift you up to the Lord. But we invite you to make that decision today. Amen? Let's stand and sing.